Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 to 18. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servant what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits, before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us, and has freed us, from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom, and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatria, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. 
When was the last time that you saw or experienced something that was truly breathtaking? I think it's, I answered that question, I think I would say it was a walk we had as a family uh, in 2020, in the spring, up the Malvern Hills. It was a beautiful sunny day, uh, there was uh, no cloud, hardly any clouds, and if you looked out, you could see for miles, and it was one of those take-your-breath-away moments. It um, may have brought me to my knees had not the walk-up brought me to my knees But in our reading together this morning that was uh, read for us so helpfully, you will have read in verse, or you heard uh, and read in verse 17, that when John, who was an early Christian leader, sees a vision of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, well, you might say in a similar way, his breath is taken away because, or you read verse 17, that he fell as though dead. Not in exhaustion, but in worship before the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as you've already said many times, today is Easter Sunday. And today, of all days, we rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and then rose again from the dead. And this is not just an idea. This is not just a nice thought. Christians believe this happened in history because God's word tells us that it did. And our link as we think about the significance of that reality, the risen Lord Jesus, and the link into today as Easter Sunday, is that John sees there that vision of the Lord Jesus, who is the risen and ever-living Christ. And it's really significant that that John sees Jesus before he is given and he sends any of the messages that he has for the churches that he has been given to share with the Lord's people. Because the reality of an ever-living Savior is vital to John and it's vital to everyone who will read John's words. We started uh, earlier in the reading in Revelation chapter 1, if you have it, turn with me, because in verse 9, you'll see there that John describes himself as their brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. So John is, is imprisoned, he's an early Christian leader, imprisoned on the island of Patmos, which is on the edge of Greece. He's writing to Christians who are facing trials and hardship and suffering. These Christians who were the first recipients of his letter had been slandered. We read elsewhere that they had been so hard-pressed that as he looks at them, he sees they have little strength left. And if you ever felt that way, to have little strength remaining... And the risen Lord Jesus Christ comes to John in the midst of all that he is experiencing and comes through John's words to his people. And he comes to bring comfort. Did he notice there in verse 17 that as John sees him and falls to his feet as though dead, what does the Lord Jesus do? Well, he placed his right hand on me, we read. That right hand, that right hand of power and authority, 
is placed there upon John, and then he speaks those words. And the first things that Jesus says to him, those first four words are, do not be afraid. Now, I wonder, what is it John might be afraid of? Well, well, he might say, and I think it's true to say, there'd be something truly um, fearful in the right sense of the, of the vision that he was seeing of the Lord Jesus. That's true. But I think there's something else here. As we understand John's context and the church's situation to Hitchy is writing, because they're also afraid in light of the situation they are facing. John has reasons to fear. He has reasons to fear because leaders of the early church were killed. And so perhaps he wonders what will he face? Will he be tortured? Will he go through further trials? May he die? And the people he wrote to had reasons to fear, the pressure, the hardship, and the struggle. And friends, I put it to you this morning that we have reasons to fear as well. Perhaps for different reasons. Maybe you fear loneliness. Something that worries you. Maybe you fear uncertainty. Not knowing what the future may hold. Maybe you are fearful because of discouragement. Maybe you're fearful because you're weary. Or fearful because you're afraid of failure in some way into the future. But what we're going to see together as we look at these verses in Revelation chapter 1 is that an ever-living Savior takes away our fears. The risen Lord Jesus Christ takes away our fears. And we're going to see three reasons why that's the case, particularly as we focus in on verses 17 and 18. But as we have time, we're going to jump slightly um, before it as well. So we're going to see three reasons why an ever-living, risen Christ takes away our fears. And the first is this, that Jesus is glorious. <clears throat> Jesus is glorious. The, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ here and the vision of Christ shows us a glorious saviour. Now, this word glorious, what does it mean? Well, it has this sense of weighty and substantial. That's what it means. It is a God-like glory that we're thinking about this morning. And we see that, first of all, in Christ's words. So as Jesus is glorious, we see that his words demonstrate that. Because look with me at verse 17, that having said, do not be afraid, the next thing John says Sorry, Jesus says to John is, I am the first and the last. Now that is a claim from the Lord Jesus to be the one true and living God. Now we know that because we heard in the reading earlier on in Revelation chapter 1 that, that God said, verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, when God refers to himself as the Alpha and the Omega, Alpha is the first word in the Greek alphabet, Omega is the last word in the Greek alphabet, so it is another way of saying, I am the first and the last. So Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. The Lord God says, I'm the first and the last. And that way of God speaking about himself is not new to Revelation. Back in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 44, verse 6, we read this. This is what the Lord says, I am the first and I am the last. So do you see the connection, friends, that 
the risen Lord Jesus Christ is declaring that he is the Lord God. That he is the king of the universe because he uses the language that God uses. But it's not just Christ's words. It's also this amazing vision of the Lord Jesus Christ that show us Jesus' glory. Because if you look at verses 12 to 16... Just coming before that section we're focusing in on, we see that there's this astonishing vision of Jesus. Now, we don't have time to get into the detail. We're only going to be able to pick up the highlights. But what I want us to really grasp hold of here, it is not for us to focus on what, or it is not for us to to reason from this vision to what Jesus looks like physically. The purpose of the vision is to tell us what Jesus is like in his person. That's the point here. So as you hear it, don't try and paint a picture in your minds. As you hear it, think, what do the different things in the vision show us about Christ? And here's a few highlights. You notice there that in verse uh, 13, that as John looks and he sees, he sees, um, among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. Now that phrase, the Son of Man, is from the Old Testament and the book of Daniel. If you want to go and look at it, you'll find it in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And this Son of Man in Daniel 7 has an everlasting dominion. So he is, we might say, an eternal king. And then you'll notice he is wearing these kingly robes there in verse 13, these robes that reach down to his feet and a golden sash. So he's an eternal king, but notice also that he is all wise. This is one of the pictures that we can grasp so well, because in verse 14, the hair on his head was white like wool. And of course, white hair makes us think of maturity and wisdom, doesn't it? And then he's not only uh, all wise, he is all knowing. End of verse 14, his eyes are like blazing fire because he can see and know everything. There is nowhere that you can hide from this all-seeing Lord Jesus Christ. But not only that, he is not only a king who is all wise and all knowing, he is unchanging. Look down at verse 15 and you see there that his feet were like bronze glowing as in a furnace. Now this is a picture of the sense in which the Lord Jesus Christ is solid and dependable. He doesn't move in a world that changes. He is steadfast and he speaks with the voice of the power of God. Verse 15 again, his voice was like rushing or we might also translate it roaring waters. Now think of where John is. He's on an island, the island of Patmos. Think of him stood there by, uh, by the cliffs. And what is happening is the waves come in, they're crashing against the cliffs. And there's that, that powerful noise that you can hear from the waves. And, and John is hearing the Lord Jesus and he's saying his voice is like that. And not only that, he has a sword in his mouth, verse 16, speaking of judgment and power. So those are some of the highlights of the vision. And as we come to the end of it in verse 16, end of the verse, we notice that his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And that that attribute, friends, is like a summation of all the others. Because what's going on here? Well, the Lord Jesus is shining with all the brilliance of the glory of God. That's the vision. That's what he's seeing. 
So in Christ's words that he is, the first and the last, and in the vision that John has seen in verses 12 to 16, we are seeing the Lord Jesus as glorious and divine. And that matters because of this reason. In whatever situation John is facing, in whatever situation the Lord's people are facing as they first receive this letter, And whatever situation God's people face today, what do we need? We need a divine rescuer. You know, people are seeking saviors all the time, aren't they? (laughs) But we're seeking rescuers and saviors in all kinds of different places. So you think, and you think of politicians, and what do we seek from politicians? We want to be saved and protected from inflation and the cost of living crisis. People people look to doctors to save them from illness and death. People look to friends to protect them from loneliness and rejection. But none of those people can fully protect us and save us from everything that we might fear. Because if we're honest, they lack the power. And however good they are, they lack the perfect goodness. And friends, one day they will leave us. We need someone to trust. We need someone who can take away our fears and never lead us. We need leavers. We need a glorious and divine savior. But not only that, friends, there's something else that we need. We need someone greater to captivate our vision. Because when we fear, And we all fear, don't we, in different ways. When we fear, what's going on inside of us? Well, what's going on inside of us is the thing that we are fearing has become too big to us such that we cannot see ourselves without it. Or we fear what it might do to us. You can apply it to all kinds of fears, to failure, the fear of failure. Because we're afraid of the success that we'll lose, what it will mean for our lives, the fear of a loss of of friendships, because we trust in those people to be our everything to us. They've become too big, however good and great they might be. And friends, because we cannot bear the thought of losing them or the things that we gain from them, that is what motivates our fears. But what do we need? We need a vision. We need a sight, as the song tells us, of a glorious saviour who is greater, who is more, who is more satisfying and more glorious and just more than anything else. And as we are taken up with the glory of Christ, we're freed from our fears, are we not? Jesus is glorious. And that's the first way he takes away our fears. The second way he takes away our fears is that Jesus is the living one. And here we're going to really zone now in on verses 17 and 18. Because here we see the Lord Jesus Christ is an ever-living saviour. See that in two aspects. We see it in the title that he has, verse 18, start of the verse, as the living one. He says, I am the living one. Now that again, is a reference to Jesus Christ in his divinity as God. Because if you jump forward to Revelation verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, we read that the Lord God is the one who lives forever and ever. 
twice said, the one who lives forever and ever. So Christ is saying, I am the ever-living one, just like the Lord God. Again, a claim of divinity. But also notice that, it refra- that we're reminded there that I was dead, verse 18 of chapter 1. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. So the argument Jesus is making there is to say that we can know that he is ever living because he went through death and rose again and so will never die again. Just think about those words. I was dead. The Bible declares to us that Jesus really died on the cross. It happened in history. His heart stopped beating. His lungs exhaled. His brain stopped functioning. And in his humanity, he was as dead as anyone could be. He was put in the grave and he had to die. Why? Because he needed to die as a perfect substitute in the place of his people. It couldn't just be a great picture of sacrifice. It needed to be a real sacrifice because he needed to be the Lamb of God who would die in the place of his people. And so he really died. But then also, he really rose. And Jesus says, not, notice it's not the past tense, isn't it? I was dead, past tense. What does it say of Christ's resurrection? I am alive, present tense. It is the truth today that Jesus Christ is alive. He didn't just raise spiritually like a ghost in that sense. He rose with a real body. Yes, it was transformed because he was the first one to be made new in that sense. But he had a real body. People could see that he was a real person. He, he ate and he spoke. And friends, it just reminds us as we see that, I am alive. It reminds us of the overwhelming evidence for the resurrection. It was a genuine event that happened in history. And can I just say, and just ask you, have you looked into the reality of the resurrection? You know, God holds that forward as one of the great things that you should consider if you want to know whether Christianity is really worth considering and really true. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Have you ever looked into that? It would take you some time to dig into it, but I put it to you, it would be the most valuable investment of your time that you can make in all the world. Because as you investigate it, you find that it really happened. Here's a great book, Your Verdict on the Empty Tomb. I've got some on the table. You can have them on the way out. And read it and tell me why it's wrong. That's my challenge to you. Read it and tell me why Jesus didn't rise. So Jesus rose, and he rose having died to show that he had paid for our sins, to demonstrate his power over death. And that means, friends, that today he is, as he claims here, the ever-living one. He is a living saviour. Because if death can't hold him, nothing will. He's alive today. And that means that you can trust his words, do not fear, because he can deliver on it, and he can always deliver on it. And I put it to you that in our fears, we need to trust in something that is eternal, something that will never die because it can never then leave us, because what can die can go, can't it? What can die can abandon us. 
And as you think about it, people trust in so many different things. People trust in and worship statues. People trust in and worship religious leaders. People trust in gurus. They trust in, at times, animals and trees and more. But what's the reality for all those things? They come and they go. They can leave you. And we need someone who will never leave us, who is never unreachable, who is never unavailable, who is never asleep, who is never incapacitated, who is never just gone. Isn't that our plea when precious loved ones are dying? What do we plea? Don't leave me because we don't want to be abandoned by those in whom we trust. But Jesus Christ, because he is ever living, will never leave you. He's always there. He is never asleep. He is never unable to help because he is the living one, the ever living one. Jesus The risen Lord Jesus takes away our fears because he is a divine, he's a glorious saviour. Jesus is an ever-living saviour. And then thirdly and finally, Jesus has power over all things. Look down with me at the end of verse 18. Those final words where Jesus says, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and death. Hades. Now, you might ask the question, why does he speak of that? Why not just stop with that statement, I am alive forever and ever. What's added by that statement? I hold the keys of death and Hades. Well, if we understand something of these uh, concepts, then I think it will help us because Hades is the realm of the dead. That's how they refer to the realm of the dead. It's where evil spirits and dead people go. And then death, well, death is what you pass through to the realm of the dead. And death, if we're honest, is what we all fear most and what's beyond. But few will admit that. But if we're really honest, that is why so few of us want to talk about death. Have you noticed that? It comes up and then people move on as quick as possible because we fear it. And that is why everyone runs from the funeral to the wake in order to forget about what they've just been reminded of in reality. We don't want to dwell on the reality of death. And that's because death brings separation and an unknown eternity of what might be beyond. And that is why there is this great fear of death in our world. And people don't want to talk about it. Now, the belief in in the eternal was something that all the ancients had. If you go to every, uh, all the ancient civilizations I'm aware of, and they believed in something beyond death. And whilst many today would say, well, I don't believe in that, I think deep down many of us do, if we're really honest. Think about it. After death, we often say the person who is deceased is, well, they've never really left, as we say, don't we? Or we say something like, well, well, they're watching over us. Or we might say, well, well, they've gone to a better place. And deep down, when we're confronted by death and eternity, we all know there's something beyond the grave. 
Now, if we're just made up of cells and neurons connecting them, well, that makes no sense because that means that death's just the end and that's it. We cease to be. But death isn't the end, friends. And the Bible tells us that God has put eternity in your heart and my heart. And that is why we all want to know and we all fear what might be beyond. Because however hard we try to suppress it down, like we might, you know those, when you play in the pool, oh, summer's coming, isn't it? I'm looking, we play in the pool in the summer, and what do you do? You get the big ball and you try and keep it in below the water, and eventually it pops up, doesn't it? And it's a bit like that, the denial of reality, it's what we're trying to do. We say there's nothing beyond, we're trying to keep the ball down, but eventually it pops up. We get the reminders, eternity is real. And you and I will live forever because God has given us an eternal soul. Our bodies will live forever, the Bible says as well. The great question is, where? That's what you've got to answer today. It's what I've got to answer today. And that's why the resurrection is so very significant. You're going to live forever. Where will it be? See the significance of Jesus saying that I hold the keys to death and Hades? What's he saying? He's saying, I can make you secure in death forever because I hold the keys to both. You know, um, it wasn't that long ago when we moved house and I still remember what it was like to go through that completion day. Because what do you do? Well, you pack all your stuff, all your worldly goods into this lorry. You take the stuff that you really don't want to use and you put loose and you put it in the car. And then if you're in a chain in this transaction, things start to happen, don't they? The first house sells, the money goes to them, and then the estate agents release the keys and they've got it. And then your house is next up. Keys are with the estate agents already. The money gets transferred between the solicitors. Suddenly you own nothing. And then you wait for the call a few hours later when the money has landed in the seller's solicitor's account. They finally place the phone call to the estate agents. The estate agents ring you and say, you can have the keys. And what does that mean? You own the house. It's yours. That's the picture here, friends. Jesus Christ owns death and Hades. And it means, and this is the crucial point, it means that for those who believe, death is still horrible, but it's not hopeless. Because death brings separation, but he takes us through death and we enter into his eternal kingdom where he is making all things new. There was a preacher called C.H. Spurgeon and he lived towards the end of the 19th century. Now it's important to know, and I remind myself of this when I was preparing this week, that that means that he was living or he died and for therefore the duration of his life was 30 years before the invention of penicillin, first antibiotic, and 40 years before they were using anesthetic, I understand. 
generally in operations. So as we know that, hear these words from C.H. Spurgeon. He says this, We have suffered bereavement after bereavement. Means a lot, doesn't it? But we are going, he says, to the land of the immortal, where graves are unknown things. That's what it means, friends. You will never stand at a graveside. Your loved ones in Christ will never stand at your graveside. Because if you are trusting in Jesus, you are going to the land of the immortal where graves are unknown things. But there's more. Because Christ in saying, I have power over death and Hades, is not just saying I have power over those things. As huge as that is, he's saying something else. He is saying he has power over everything. Because the two strongest things that people feared the most, death itself, that no one could conquer. Jesus Christ has conquered, and he's got it on his key ring. And what does that mean? Well, it means that if you are victorious over that which is most powerful and most feared, you are powerful over everything, friends. There is nothing outside of his power. And so, friends, we might say that Jesus' words here mean as well that whatever we might fear, Christ has power over it. And so, this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, resurrected and ever-living Christ draws near. And he draws near and he says to those who love him, do not be afraid. And we need to hear those words of Christ and apply them to whatever it is we fear most. Our worries, our trials, and our hardships, he says, do not be afraid. In our tears and our sorrow, he says, do not be afraid. In all that keeps you up, wakes you up, and wears you down, he says, do not be afraid. Because he is an all-powerful saviour. So friends, as we close, God is speaking to me and to you today. So it's really important to grasp as as we come as God's people around God's living word, the Bible, and as we've seen truth, living truth from God's word, This is not just a nice idea to think about for a few minutes and then get on with the rest of life. Things that we have seen from God's word this morning have eternal significance for your soul and mine. Have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death? Do you believe he died for you? That though you should have gone to the cross because of your sin, he bore your sin when he died on the tree. And then friends, if that is your trust, that you are trusting in him, his resurrection from the dead means everything to you. 
Because not only does it prove and secure your eternity, it demonstrates his power over everything that you might fear. Christians often say today, don't they? Christ is risen. And God's people say to one another, he is risen indeed. And he says to us, as the risen Lord Jesus, in the words of the King James Version, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen.